taking a break from our studies in Mark this week to turn to the book of Isaiah. Um, And before I read our text, I just want to give you guys um, a little bit of an intro into the book since it's it's a pretty big book and a pretty complicated book. And and I thought I'd share with you uh, two quotes that you'll find both encouraging and challenging when we approach the prophets, which are some of the most difficult books in the Bible to read and and to understand. So first, Martin Luther, this is what Martin says about the prophets. The prophets have a queer way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next. So you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. And so <laughs> be encouraged that, that uh, Martin Luther said that about reading the Bible, the prophets. But then uh, this is what John Calvin said about reading the prophets. Those for whom prophetic doctrine is tasteless ought to be thought of as lacking taste buds. So it's hard. I get it, but it's rewarding. Uh, and I hope in today's sermon that uh, we'll be able to unearth some of those riches um, for us, for our edification. So Isaiah was written uh, 800 years before the coming of Christ, about 150 years before the southern kingdom of Judah was uh, conquered and destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, and it was addressed to to these future events. Uh, the first half of the book, uh, Isaiah warns Judah that they are going to go into exile for breaking covenant with God. And that he is going to use the pagan nations around Judah, uh, specifically uh, the book talks about Assyria and then Babylon to enact his judgment. And at the end of chapter 39, uh, which is kind of the divide between the first and second half of the books, we have that scene of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He welcomes these uh, emissaries from the Babylonian empire into his uh, palace and into the temple and shows him, look, look at all this wonderful stuff I have here. And Isaiah says, yeah, all that stuff is going to be going into exile. God is going to judge you for your apostasy. However, in the second half of the book, Isaiah pivots to speaking words of comfort. And he addresses, uh, even before all these things happen, even before they go into exile, he, t- he addresses their situation and, and gives them hope and, and, and talks about how God is going to restore them. And he, especially in the last third of the book, Isaiah begins to expand his uh, purview from the historical context that he's writing to, to the universal human condition where we all find ourselves. And that's where we find some of the most famous passages of Isaiah, the servant songs, and that's also where we find our text today. So with that being said, let's turn to Isaiah 59. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter just for our context. I'll be drawing uh, from the first half of the chapter here and there in my sermon, but we'll be concentrating on on the text that's printed for you um, in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, 
Or is your dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear? For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts turn to our thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble as noon, uh, at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words." Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled into public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those who in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Holy God, you are the Holy One of Israel, and we don't deserve to stand in your presence, yet you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us through these words, words made with our mouths that we can hear with our ears that penetrates into our hearts and transforms us. May it be so by your Spirit, even now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So, 
One of my favorite movies of all time is called Payback with Mel Gibson. Um, made in the 90s, it's kind of this noir film um, about this small-time criminal who uh, steals money with his partner from other criminals. And then he's double-crossed by his partner, and he's, his share of the cut, $70,000, is taken from him. He's, he's left for dead, and he spends the rest of the movie uh, recovering and then trying to get back what's, in his mind, rightfully his. You see, this, this man, his name is Porter, the character's name, he's, he may be a thief, but he's got principles, He's got a code. In fact, the tagline of the movie is to get ready to root for the bad guy. <clears throat> and the running gag throughout the film is that every time he comes up with, uh, to, to people he's trying to get his money back from, and they ask him, is it, it $140,000 that, that you're looking for? And he says, no, no, 70, not 140, 70, just my fair share. You see, he's got principles. And aren't we all ready to root for the bad guy? Because we see ourselves in them? See, in today's TV shows and movies, it's more common to, to see anti-heroes rather than heroes. We see, you know, the bad fighting against the really bad, and we root for the bad. Because the people they're up against are so crooked and so powerful that in order to stop them, the ends justify the means. And I think we enjoy rooting for the bad guy because deep down, all of us think that despite our own flaws and foibles, we're not as bad as most other people we know. So we glorify our virtues and we downplay our flaws just like our big screen heroes but in our text this morning, we see the world from God's perspective, not ours. God is not an anti-hero. He is the hero, and we are the villains. There aren't good people and bad people in the world. There's people that know this about themselves and about God, and there's people that willfully deny it. But there is good news. The hero of the story is able and willing to deliver us from our plight. He's able to open the eyes of the blind and cause the lame to walk and bridge the gap between our iniquities and our holy God. His name is Jesus, and he is our Redeemer. And we'll explore this in three parts. First, all of us are sinners. Second, God is an all-powerful judge. And third, God is sending his Redeemer to Zion. So first, all of us are sinners. <laughs> Our section of the text that we're exploring today begins with verses 14 and 15. And these verses summarize the entire first half of the chapter that I read for you. And thank you for bearing with me through that, but I thought it was important. We read here, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. See, there's a relationship here between the first and second halves of this verse. 
There, there is no justice and no righteousness present. And the evidence for that is that the truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness is not admis- admitted. Truth and uprightness here are parallel concepts. The first half of the verse says that um, the truth stumbles in the public square. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. It's not promoted, it's not valued. And in the second half of the verse, we see that uprightness or honesty can't even enter at all. There's no place for those who, who value truth in the public square. The lack of truth signifies that we are not righteous and that we do not value justice. And we can see this in our world. Philosophical movements over the last century have come to deny that there is a, such a thing as objective truth that has its source in the eternal, unchanging God. And this denial of, of objective truth of God is now working its way out in every corner of public life. I learned last year that my alma mater, Cornell University, has renamed its religious affairs department to the Office of Spirituality and Meaning Making. Aside from the absurdity of this title, I want you to pay close attention to what they're doing, what they're saying. They're saying that we no longer receive meaning from an external source to ourselves that is true for everybody, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. Now we make our own meaning. Or, as the book of Judges says, we do what is right in our own eyes. Rejection of God and his truth as revealed in his word will inevitably lead to injustice. The Ten Commandments are ordered the way they are because if you reject God as Lord over all and fail to worship him, you will end up breaking all of the subsequent commandments as well. For example, consider the second commandment that you shall not make idols for yourselves, graven images, and bow down and worship them. The ancient Hebrews were unique in their uh, context for in that they didn't have an image of their God that they bowed down and worshipped to, like the other nations around them who constructed these amalgamations of animals and humans and fashioned them and then used them to in their worship services. But that's not because the Israelites didn't have images of God. You see... The ancient Near Eastern kings would also erect statues of themselves and command their subjects to worship them, as we find in the book of Daniel. And the book of Genesis teaches us that human beings are made in the image of God. They bear his likeness. You see, every human being is a statue of God, in a sense. And what do you do if you don't like a king? You deface his statues. You cast them down. You destroy his portraits. You see, the way that we show our love for God is how we love his images, our neighbors. That is how we pay homage to God. Rejecting God always results in attacking our fellow human beings. And that's what we see here in the text. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. 
Because how can they be present when the standard for their requirements is denied? <clears throat> Isaiah makes clear that there is no one who is righteous. At the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, he says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And in the subsequent verses, he elaborates on the nature of these iniquities. There's murder, slander, injustice, strife, evil thoughts, false accusations, oppression. The entire second table of the law broken. And in fact, in verse 15, the text says that we not only do good evil, but we punish those who do good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's Isaiah 5.20. Our evil is so pervasive, so insidious, that we persecute those who seek to turn from it. <clears throat> well, perhaps you think that Isaiah is just talking about the Israelites who forsook their God. And isn't that always a temptation when we read the Old Testament is, is we fail to see ourselves in the text, that the text is not just talking about them, but it's talking about us? Because the text itself here invites us in. It shows us in the mirror. In verse 9, Isaiah switches from the third person to the second. He stops saying they... And he starts saying, we, over and over again. We hope for light and behold darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We stumble at the noon as in the twilight. We, not them, we. The word of God shows us who we are. There's no good guys among us. There's no heroes among us to be found. And God sees it. In the second half of verse 15, it says, The Lord saw it, all of this, and it displeased him. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, The mountains are high and the emperor is far away. What does that mean? Its meaning is that although the emperor may have laws and taxes, the land is so vast and his servants are so few in number that those living far away can do whatever they want. He's not going to know about it. And isn't that how we view God sometimes? That he's not paying attention? That he doesn't see that he's content to let evil occur without uh, punishment? No. That's not what the text says here. The Lord saw it and displeased him that there was no justice. This word displeased here can also be translated appalled or angry. God will not be mocked. He won't. He will not be mocked by his enemies who flout his law and commit, commit evil against the helpless. He cannot and will not abide with evil. Who does God see when he looks down at us, when, when he looks down at our, our country, 
He sees the wholesale murder of unborn children in the womb. 3,000 abortions performed every day in this country. He sees the enshrinement of immoral sexual ideology installed in our schools, including the rejection of the objective nature of our God-given identities as male and female created in the image of God in favor of something that anyone can adopt or discard as he or she sees fit. For we view ourselves as the creator, and we have taken upon ourselves the creator's prerogatives. He sees the propagation of lies and slander in our public squares, the excessive editorializing of our media as they seek to get more clicks instead of simply reporting the objective facts. He sees the perpetration of fake news, alternative facts, and conspiracy theories on all sides, and a lack of charity and regard for those that we disagree with. He sees evil beget evil as the slaying of unarmed black men and women is used to justify looting and destruction of stores and homes of people who had nothing to do with it, which is then used to justify marching on the capital of our nation to force the political outcome that we desire, not based upon objective facts, but on the narratives that we spin for ourselves to justify our behavior on all sides. Everybody is so eager to invoke God on their side. Just like when Joshua spoke with the angel of the Lord, are you for us or against us? You remember the response? No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. We need to get on God's side. He doesn't need to get on our side. We've even in, invented a term for this. Call it whataboutism. God calls it hypocrisy. But maybe all I've done to convince you so far is that the problem is outside these doors. The problem is outside the walls of our church, the, the doors of our homes. Because we're different in the church, right? Right? And when we turn this text upon ourselves, we feel our, our spines stiffening up, the defensiveness growing. I'm not like that, Lord. I love the truth. I am righteous. We do justice. But if we are honest with ourselves, we find that many times there is no justice in the church either. The words of Scripture were twisted by wicked men who came up with the doctrine of kinism to justify slavery. We condemn divorce in the church, but we get them too. We condemn sexual immorality, but we are addicted to pornography ourselves. We look at the rich and we judge them for their greed and their ill-gotten money, but we also fail to give generously to support the gospel ministry or to meet the needs of the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. We look on in horror at the surgical abuse of children in the name of transgender ideology, but our pews harbor abusers of children as well. Are there any among us, brothers and sisters, that can stand up and claim that blood is not on our hands one way or another? No. 
There is no moral superiority to be found among us here on the earth in comparison to the Holy One of Israel. Many of you have heard this week about the uh, tale of Ravi Zacharias, the well-known Christian apologist. An independent agency has found credible evidence that Zacharias used his fame and money to spiritually and sexually abuse women for a long period of time, a pattern of behavior over years and decades. The extent of the abuse is still being uncovered and may never be fully known. And the report details how Zacharias would abuse the gospel to trap these women, to manipulate them, to tell them, if you tell anybody about this, so many people are going to be hurt by it. (laughs) The faith of those people that listen to me are going to be damaged. So don't tell anyone. How wicked, how despicable. And you may wonder, how, how does a man like Ravi, who studies scripture and teaches and preaches and is respected as a great man of God, how, how, does, he, how does he live such a wicked double life? Well, it's because he thinks that the words of Isaiah 59 don't apply to him. And the same thing will happen to us if we think the words of this text don't apply to us. It's not us versus them. It's us versus us. The sin in our own hearts. Pastor Rob recently preached upon the betrayal of Jesus. And I want to call your attention to that scene at the Last Supper, when Jesus says to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. You remember the response? Is it I, Lord? See, they heard the word of the Lord, and that before they wielded it against others, they returned it upon themselves. They didn't react with defensiveness, but with contrition, with repentance. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Brothers and sisters, what God desires is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He will not turn away. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And forgiven people like us should understand that none of us can stand before the throne and claim that our hands are clean. None of us. The appropriate response to our sin is not self-justification, but lament. This brings me to my second point, that God is an all-powerful judge. The Lord, in the second half of verse 16, takes action. He sees no one is going to put things right, so he is going to do it himself. We read in verse 17, his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. The arm of the Lord throughout Scripture is a symbol of his power to save and destroy. In Exodus 6, 6, the Lord tells Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God's arm brought salvation to Israel and judgment upon Egypt. It's not that God is 
helpless or powerless in the face of evil. Right? We see that in verse 1 of chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand isn't shortened that it cannot save. God isn't a bystander watching a mugging happening and has just got his hands in his pockets because he doesn't want to get hurt himself. No. He is infinitely powerful, and he is going to bring his power to bear upon the wicked. The next verse says that his own righteousness upheld him. The word, up, the word upheld here is, is translated elsewhere in the Bible as to lean on or to support. And I think the sense here is that God doesn't need support or help from anybody else. He is self-sufficient. He is the ultimate source of goodness, righteousness, justice, and life in himself. That is why God, and only God, can ultimately deal with injustice and wickedness. If judgment and salvation depended on you and I, then it would be a hopeless cause. But if it depends upon the infinitely powerful God of the universe, then we can rest assured it's going to happen, period. Some of you know that I attended my uh, final uh, classes for, uh, in-person classes for seminary this past month. And and, uh, for one of our classes, which was on pastoral ministry, uh, there was a particular verse that became the life verse for me and I'm sure many other men there who are considering what it means to, to be a pastor. It's uh, from Zechariah. <clears throat> Zechariah is an amazing book that is well worth studying despite its challenges and its purpose was to encourage the Jews returning from exile to rebuild the temple of God. And the question is asked to the Lord, how is this going to happen? How, how are a little band of Jews going to rebuild the temple facing intense opposition, not even having their own nation anymore? And God's answer is this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, God is going to bring his kingdom to to come. It's not going to come by our efforts. See, we, we often think that everything depends on us. We act as if God's kingdom is going to come by might and power. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting here that Christians ought to be disengaged from the world, just holed up in our holy huddles and and waiting for Jesus to come back and not actually getting out there and doing things, feeding the poor and preaching the gospel. We can certainly take this too far and forget that God chooses to work through human instruments. But that being said, all too often we place our hopes in the right protest movements, or political figures, or education, or technology, or smart policies, thinking if we just pass this law or put more kids through school, 
or legalize drugs or make all drugs illegal, whatever, will bring utopia about. Heaven on earth, upheld by our own righteousness. But we can't do that. We can't do that. The history of the 20th century should bear witness to the fact that all attempts to create utopias on earth through human effort only exacerbate and perpetrate even greater amounts of injustice and human sufferings. Brothers and sisters, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124.8 Put your hope and trust in him alone to bring about a kingdom of justice and righteousness and love. Only the Lord can depend upon himself. Everybody else has to depend on him. And to that end, we need to be a people of prayer. See, prayer is how we show our dependence upon God. It looks like foolishness to the world. It looks like we're just mouthing empty words into the air. But it is how we acknowledge that we are not God. Isaiah 62, 7 puts it this way. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Give the Lord no rest in your prayer. That's what the Bible is saying there. Isn't that amazing? He's inviting us to learn to depend on him through prayer. So when you see the latest video clip in your social media feeds, let your first impulse not be to start posting or calling your senator. Let your first impulse be to pray. The next verses show what God is going to do. In verse 17, he dons the armor and clothing of a warrior. There are many passages in the Old Testament that describe God as a divine warrior, and especially in the book of Numbers and Judges, we, we read over and over again that the Lord fights for his people. And this imagery is continued into the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is depicted with a sword coming out of his mouth, ready to strike down his enemies. <clears throat> the description of the armor the righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head, garments of vengeance for clothing, zeal as a cloak, all these things, all these qualities that we lack, God has. God is going to avenge every evil act ever committed upon this earth. In verses 18, we read that according to their deeds will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. The reference to the coastlands here is is saying that there's nowhere to run. We cannot get away from God's justice. There's going to be no loopholes. No tax shelters. No way to evade what is coming. 
Psalm 139 puts it this way. David writes of God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light became night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Brothers and sisters, on the day of the Lord, all of our secrets will be revealed. And for those who do not turn away from their sin and take refuge in the Lord's mercy, there will be everlasting condemnation in hell. If you're here today, or you're watching online, and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, you need to know you're going to answer to God. Without the righteousness of Jesus, you will be standing at the wedding feast of the Lamb dressed in spider's webs. That's what Isaiah 59, 6 says. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. None of us will stand, will be fit to stand before the judge based on our own merit. And we could be summoned to face the judge at any moment in time. Verse 19 reads this, right? <clears throat> Verse 19 says, They shall feel, fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. This imagery here is, is talking about, remember, this this. Judah and Israel, it's a desert, right? So the imagery here is of, imagine you're walking in a canyon in Colorado or something, bone dry. And suddenly a torrent of water comes out of nowhere and you drown. I had to look this up. It was hard to believe and... It is from the internet, so take it with a grain of salt. But according to the U.S. Geological Survey, more people end up drowning in flash floods than dying of thirst in the desert. See, they were prepared for one danger, and they totally overlooked the other. And like them, we also go about our business every day, concerned about paying our bills, figuring out where, what we're going to have for dinner, planning our next vacation, or applying to another job without considering the fact that our lifespan may be up that very hour. A Jewish rabbi was asked once by his disciples when the best time to repent was. His reply was, one day before you die. And his disciples responded saying, well, but we don't know when we're going to die. And his response was, then you should repent today. Friends, don't put this off any longer. Don't procrastinate and put your soul at risk. Repent today. Turn to God today. Second Peter 3 says that the reason the Lord's day hasn't come yet is because God is still waiting patiently for you. Turn to him today. Don't presume upon his patience. 
And this brings me to my third and final point, that God is sending his Redeemer to Zion. In verse 20, the prophet suddenly changes course from judgment to salvation. God is donning his armor not only to slay the wicked, but to save his people. Verses 20 says this, The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Notice two times here in verse 21 says the Lord. This is actually the first time in the text that it mentions God speaking himself explicitly. And the question is, who is he talking to? Some commentators think that God is still talking to um, the people. Right? He says in, in at the first half of verse uh, 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them. And them there is referring to the previous verse, those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So some commentators think, well, he's just, you know, continuing that dialogue with, with them. He's just switching to the second person now. But the problem is in the Hebrew, you actually get to pick up on something that you can't make out in English because in English, when we say you, we can't, you can't tell if the person being referred to is male or female, singular or plural, because we just have you. Uh, Hebrew has singular and plural in the second person and male and female in the second person. And in verse 21, when it says you, it's a masculine singular pronoun. And I think this is significant you see, Isaiah begins with um, what commentators call a covenant lawsuit. God is calling witnesses to the stand to testify that, Israel, you have broken my covenant. But here, God is saying, well, I'm going to make another covenant with you. How can God make covenant with covenant breakers? Why would that be a good idea? Well, it's because this new covenant depends not upon us, but upon him. See, the redeemer that he's referring to is the promised descendant of David, the suffering servant of Isaiah. God is promising that he is going to empower his servant with his spirit and his word for the purposes of redeeming his people. This marvelous verse is depicting the triune God's plan to save a people for himself. God had to swear by himself, as he did with Abraham, to redeem his people, his treasured possession. The Father sends his son, Jesus, the Messiah, into the world to keep his covenant law perfectly, for our sake, and laid upon him 
the iniquities that separated us from God. And he anointed Jesus with his spirit to enable him to accomplish his ministry. See, one chapter later, this becomes really clear. I'm just going to read a little bit from Isaiah 61 for you. And I think you'll find it a very familiar passage. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are the same words that Jesus quotes at Nazareth when he stands up in a synagogue and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling us that the book of Isaiah is all about him, that he is the promised Messiah. And as the Apostle Paul said, all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ. And the fruit of that work is that now we are united to Christ by his Holy Spirit, and what is true of him can be said to be true of us. His righteousness is our righteousness. The very same armor that God puts on here, the Apostle Paul can now say in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God. Don the very same qualities that God himself has because you've been united with Christ and your life is hidden with him on high. Everything that we need, that we are poor in, that we lack, he supplies to us in Christ. And now, just as God, the divine warrior, fought and prevailed over his enemies, so we have been commissioned as his divine warriors to do battle with the spiritual principalities and powers of this world because the ultimate victory already has been won by Christ on the cross. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. Know that you are his and go forth in faith, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ.